We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land where we're recording. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging, and to all Indigenous peoples worldwide who are listening in. Welcome to the Doyen Interviews. My name is Bridget and in this episode we'll be chatting to Megan Dwyer from John Waddle Architects. Thanks Megan for your time this evening and also thanks to Anon, the innovative classical music group, for the beautiful introductory music. introduce yourself and um, explain a little bit about your role here and um, mm. yeah, what it is that you're doing at the moment. Yeah, fantastic. Yes, Megan Dwyer, I've um, been at John Wall Architects now for uh, quite a long time, about 19 years. Yeah. Um, I started here as the eighth um, team member oh, um, wow. when I joined, yeah, and um, now I'm principal and we're a practice of um, sort of around... 90 across two studios, one in Melbourne and one in Sydney. Wow. So that has been a really intriguing um, 19 years with lots of, <laughs> kind of challenges and opportunities to yeah. grow. So it's been, a, yeah, really good. Yeah. And how did you grow? Was it something that happened organically or um, did you just get an influx of work over that mm. time? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question because you would almost gather from outside of the practice that we've had a really intentful kind of strategy mm. around growth, but it's not actually the case. Right. We, um, no, it's, it's not the case at all. It's really been that, um, you know, we've had fantastic opportunities come our way and we've, we've had to, you know, earn them like any practice, mm. um, but we've, you know, just been really fortunate to pick up some fantastic projects which have then kind of given us access, I guess, to a whole um, different sector or different level or scale of project and, and we've really right. just grown that way. Right. And so what were some of the earlier projects that sort mm. of started to change the typologies that you were working on? Mm. Well, I think, um, I mean, before my time even, um, yeah. John um, was doing a little bit of work with the CSIRO. And right. so, you know, that would probably be categorised as sort of institutional work. So that was well underway. And um, there were, we, the practice also did two um, projects for RMIT um, mm. fairly early on. They, they must have been commissions dating from, say, um, I don't know, 97, 98, something like that. Right. Um, and mm. at the time, um, Leon Van Skyke, uh had a, um, a program, if you like, of um, commissioning RMIT graduates to, to deliver RMIT oh, projects. Yeah, okay. it's a, yeah, cool. a really interesting um, initiative that, right. that he very much spearheaded at RMIT. Mm. Yeah, so um, there was some the, the first um, university projects came to the practice in that way. Okay. Mm. So there was the printing building at the Brunswick uh, campus and the biomedical building at the Bandura campus. Um, the this biomed project in particular was a mm. really um, substantial scale, uh, 
and uh, yeah, a great sort of um, learning experience for the practice. Um, and we were sort of able to build a, a portfolio in the education sector on the back of those two projects. Mm. Yeah, I find that really interesting. And I've been doing a little bit of um, reading. I mm. stumbled across this book, New Directions in Australian Architecture by Philip Graydon. Patrick Bingham Hall and it yeah it it talks about that it talks about yeah how um in the 50s and the 60s there was sort of this um you know uh, government emphasis on um putting money into university buildings Mm. um and then we then had um yeah another period of time which was sort of late 80s early 90s um but it seems to me that um, I don't know what happened between then and now, and I'm sure that um, what's going on for mm. university design has changed greatly. Mm. And, you know, that, yeah, sort of the era that you're talking about, um, yeah, there was also a lot of bringing together TAFEs and moving to the university um, accreditation models. Mm. But now it sort of seems like we're in this, yeah, this whole new era. And um, I did an interview with Jocelyn Chu, who was... Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there's just so much going on uh, down at Monash in... Um, Clayton and also at Caulfield and I mean there seems to be a lot of stuff going yeah. on tertiary buildings everywhere and you're, you've um, designed many buildings in mm. that sector as well um, mm. so how how have you found it designing buildings now in the tertiary sector as opposed to yeah those early projects yeah oh well um, I mean one thing we love about working with universities is they really do think carefully about what their buildings say about them. Right. Um, and so they're, they're, they hold their assets for a very long time. They've got quite sort of static property portfolios in many ways. So right. they, they really invest a lot in getting their buildings right, both from a practical point of view but also from a, um, a profile point of view, right. shall we say. So yeah. I think that that – I mean, that's something that's probably emerged um, – or say going back maybe 15 or so years ago right. and it's only sort of increased up to today. Um, I mean, the one fascinating thing is that, you know, 15 um, years ago or 20 years ago, I think most universities would have delivered their project work by traditional lump sum um, contracts and they, they would have been on, you know, land owned by the university, whereas really... Probably the biggest thing that we've seen in the last five years or so is that the sector has just completely opened up and their universities are funding their buildings in different ways and they're they're now using different procurement methods Mm. and they're partnering um, with, uh, you know, they're doing PPP bids. It's just the the diversity of... um, of approach out there is really quite extraordinary. You know, there are city deals from Mm. the federal government that are funding um, the relocation of university campuses. Mm. It's anything goes out there now. It's quite extraordinary. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and I guess Mm. um, I've got two questions based Mm. on that. One, how do you think that affects your design? So Mm. um, in terms of a different contract um, Mm. and, yeah, the, the clientele that you're dealing with, like what do you think are the challenges that exist um, for you as an architectural practice to realise, um, yeah, mm. the, the quality of buildings that you're wanting to produce? Yeah, yep. Look, that's a really good question and I think that um, some methods make support good design better, right. than, better than other methods. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, we find... I mean, the, we were recently part of a, a 
consortium bid for a university project. Um, that's the first time we've we've approached a university project in that way, oh. and it just puts a lot of things actually ahead of good design. Funnily enough, it it you know it's usually driven by the finance. Yeah. Um, yeah, and um, and there's a lot of kind of you know number crunching and dealing um, just to get to a, a kind of an agreement between a, a bidder and a, and a university, which um, means that the architect is very much at arm's length to the to the client. And in fact, right. we really like talking with, not just with the university, but with the end users. Yeah. Um, and so you're very much at arm's length to, to those people in that kind of process. Um, look, we work really hard to make any approach successful. We're yeah. not shy of different approaches. We, yeah. we just feel that some are probably, um, some probably lead to better outcomes than others. And so John Wardle Architects, um, it's not just education mm. buildings that you work on. There's a, a number of different typologies. Mm. Um, however, there does seem to be something that brings them together. I wouldn't say it's a style. Um, mm. I wouldn't even say it's something that you can, yeah, um, really articulate or describe on paper um, but I do feel that yeah a lot of your um, even your smaller residential projects there seems to be something in common um, mm. would you agree with that or would you say that yeah there's I mean there's so many people that work here and you're growing yeah. and you've yeah I think one of the great things and the desirable things about um, John Woodall Architects is you've been able to maintain the design studio environment um, and yeah, I guess that yeah that ties into having yeah something that brings you together. Like, mm. what would be your comment on that? Do you think that's true? Do you think that's something that happens organically? Oh, do you know? I think that I think you've observed something very interesting that we often reflect upon yeah. ourselves too. That there are these common threads that exist across all the project work. I mean, I think that, and I think um, you know, one of those threads is that we really design buildings that are kind to people and you know that the title of our recent book this building likes me yeah is, was one of the um guest authors really recognizing that um our buildings are kind to people yeah and i think that's a continuous thread right across all scales and yeah. all, all types yeah um and how do we, i think we i mean we've got a we've um, worked very hard to kind of create a a culture here that um does support um all people coming together to to work um, collaboratively, and I know that, that, yeah. that many practices talk about that, but I think we've we've managed to do that in a way where we've got kind of a creative conversation across a large group of people that mm. really propels our work forward, and so um, that's how we get a lot of consistency across the the um, projects. And you know, you can see it's sort of horizontal. It's also across time that you can right. really see ideas that were present in our work from some time ago still um, appearing in work that we're doing today. Right. Yeah. And so when you say your buildings are kind to people, mm. what would you mean by that? Mm. Would you mean that they're more empathetic or...? Uh, that word has been used also yeah. to describe our work. Yeah. yeah. I just think we they're, they're very responsive to the way that people inhabit them. Right. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, I think our materials palettes are kind of soft and warm and calming and yeah. I think we'll often sort of have a seat located by an entryway or you know so that we're thinking all the time about how people engage with our buildings and spend time in them. That's so interesting and so as a practice what would be some of the ways that you end up at that end point? Um, mm. Is it 
through, yeah, sort of like what you mentioned, having creative discussions. And it must be actually quite difficult to draw things back to that point where you, you are achieving a basic sense of comfort for all users because so many people use a building. Um, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we don't really... We don't sort of necessarily talk about it in those terms. Yeah. But, um, I mean, we, we talk a lot, for example, about civic generosity and that's right. really about you know, designing buildings that make a positive contribution back to the public realm. Right. Which says something about a generosity to people or the way that they... We support the way that they engage with our buildings in a sort of empathetic way, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we, we talk a lot about civic generosity. I think our just natural intuitive design process is that we... We're very responsive to the way that people use the buildings, mm. um, whether that's, you know, on our recent Conservatorium of Music project, which right. was just complete yeah. um, earlier this year, we thought a lot about what the practice rooms should be like because we were just very aware that music students can spend up to, you know, six or eight hours a day follow mm. practice yeah, in a small room. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and many conservatoria we had visited um, would kind of foreground the, the impressive performance spaces and and background the rehearsal rooms for example and so the day-to-day life of the conservatorium which is not the the performance necessarily it's it's often in that sort of experience of the individual as they are either in a one-on-one class with a teacher or they're in a practice room on their own yeah and so we 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 wanted to make our practice rooms very hospitable I suppose so we had you know views out natural daylight mirrors so that people can check their postures you know just those those small things that make that experience better and that's definitely as well something that John Waterlock architects often commented on yeah it's the small details right in yeah. a larger project yeah. um it sort of sounds like as a practice you you have your head in that area yeah yep yeah you don't absolutely. let it go that's yeah. really cool um yeah. and so how has just thinking about that in terms of the experience, um, mm. how has the experience of an architect changed for you from when you started to where you are now? And mm. um, you must have, um, you know, perhaps not used computers at all when you mm. first started, and now mm. we're all as architects on computers. And um, I, yeah, I mean, I start. This is also what one of the um, recent podcasts was about. Yeah, about architectural representation and what we learnt at university and what you need to do on the job. And um, yeah, like I love drawing and I loved those days at uni where you'd just be on the like drawing board. Like, yeah, and yeah. you get such a good feeling from it. And then now, like, yeah, I, I do. I do love working on the computer to an extent, but it's not the same. And mm. I wonder what what was it like for you. Um, mm. Well, look, I um, I don't spend a lot of time drawing these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but I do think we're in a really um, intriguing time because, you know, amongst our staff cohort of 90-odd, we, we do have people who still only hand-draw. Um, oh, OK, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it might be facade details that yeah. are kind of hand-drawn. Um, and we do have a few drawing boards downstairs. We still make um, models, as you can see yeah. from the models around this room, so, uh, all the way through to using, you know, virtual reality and um, and doing our own animations in-house. So I just think that at the moment we've got this incredible breadth of technique that we can draw upon yeah. that, you know, encompasses um, uh, so many people and so many skills. So I think it's a really wonderful time at the moment to, to have 
at that depth of skill. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, though, the um, later things like the animation and the VR weren't around. Um, yeah. They're relatively recent. Yeah, so, I mean, I see... Um, and, again, I sort of see that um, in our design process we draw upon all of those skills. We don't um, just depend upon computer-oriented skills. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that says something about our design thinking is... is um, sort of broad, it's not tied to a single method, I guess. Right. Yeah, so it allows us to still be quite um, uh, sort of lateral in the way that we mm. want to solve a design problem, if you like. Yeah, that's. Mm. it also sounds smart as well. Like if you've got mm. so many people coming in, people have different skills in different areas and being able, um, yeah, to allow them to overlap to yeah. achieve like a really rich result. That's it, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like I've noticed like some of my demographic um, listening on through the Instagram analysis I can sort of see, mm. which is really interesting. And, yeah, some people are in that um, much younger age bracket where they're probably just starting out at university. Mm. And, yeah, I think it, it would be so interesting to be at that stage now where computers are so... Um, so common and they must just be so computer literate um yeah, yep. <laughs> and yeah like what would your advice be for people who are yeah perhaps just discovering drawing and you know um, architectural representation in that way yeah um yeah and but also being quite strong quite computer literate what would your advice be to people mm. well i mean i do my an observation i would make is that um many people seem to find a particular technique that they're comfortable with and that they can actually use to express their ideas or their right. design directions or what have you. And I think that in many ways that is probably the most important thing that you yeah, that you're able that you feel you've got a you know good flow between the right. mind and the hand and you can whatever tool you are using is um, allowing you to um, put down your design right. thinking. Yeah. Right. Whether that's, that, I mean, that may well be computer. Yeah. Um, but it could also be hand sketching or it could be diagramming or it could be yeah. model making or yeah. what have you. But, and I think that's really what ends up um, happening here is that we, um, there's, we just naturally kind of gravitate toward um, that. Right. So, you know, design ideas expressed fluidly and beautifully mm. um, regardless of the tool. Um, being confident and being able to do something um, like honestly yeah um, yeah but also yeah taking that step to think okay what is it that I'm drawing and not just saying okay here you go <laughs> um, which is I think yeah I think people around my level yeah feel this pressure to be able to um, output stuff and also maybe yeah sometimes you feel a bit you're hard on yourself because you think mm. oh, I wish I could yeah, output what I'm thinking, but I think, it, yeah, it takes time to get to that. Um, oh, yeah, always, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think, look, from my point of view, probably what I do more these days, in fact, is um, is look over people's shoulders and, and um, sketch across the top of the drawing or um, uh, sort of you know, redirect thinking through conversation rather than necessarily outputting myself. It's kind of a necessity in busy practice life, really, to be able to, you know, have conversation and shape something through conversation. What do you think are the ways that people at John Woodall Architects are 
growing and developing their skills to mm. yeah get continue. I feel like architecture is a bit of a it's like stepping stones. Yeah. Um, do you think it's a lot of of that of mentoring? Yeah, things. yeah. I mean, I still learn every day. It's to think about your career in that way is probably quite useful. You don't ever know everything, and you know, keep learning all the time. So I think that that it's a sort of growth mindset, if you like, that you're always open to new ways of doing things or new information or new methods or whatever. That, And I think that um, it's really important for a practice to kind of foster that because I think we're, we're all on a learning curve. We all yeah. need to keep um, expanding and, and growing. Yeah, it's so true. And I think as well, like this pressure that you sometimes feel in the industry comes mm. from not wanting to make a mistake and not wanting to yeah. say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And yep. um, yeah, I think changing that mindset to having more of a growth mindset can help that a lot. Yeah. And um, yep. yeah, asking questions that you like think are silly um, can be really helpful. And yeah, yeah like we are all like growing in yeah, it is an industry where I'm sure you would have um, found that the knowledge that you need over time has just continually oh, evolved. Yeah. Well, look, I think one learning for me fairly early on in my time here was how to navigate discrepancies between brief and budget and program. You know, stepping into some of these larger projects and, and having to um, problem solve things that perhaps one could expect to be... You know, right. resolved when you start yeah and I think for me quite a learning curve in just understanding what the what say a discrepancy with between brief and budget meant and right. how, how to go about actually resolving it that's a big one for me and it probably you know did it did something go wrong well I guess the the you know the project might have come in significantly over budget right and you've got to work out you know how to align it align the brief and budget again so that it's yeah. on budget and we can keep moving forward yeah so that that was a fairly big learning for me fairly early and it's still you know it, it's it still happens many projects and I think there's always a different a slightly different pathway to bring those two things back together um, it's never quite exactly the same yeah and so um, yeah, I'm probably now better equipped. Yeah, like you don't really get much training in that area no. at uni. <laughs> Not a huge, as as larger consequences when it's a smaller project. But yeah, what we're talking about is really large projects that John Waddle have produced and mm. could imagine the learning curve would just mm. be um, really huge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You have such an amazing portfolio of work. Is there a, one building in particular that you look back on or that you're working on currently that you've really enjoyed yeah. or a part of it? Um, well, there's probably a couple. I mean, the Hawk building for me, which was a project we did for UniSA, okay. um, completed in, I think, 2005 or six. That's one I'm particularly fond of. It, it just made such an impact to the city of Adelaide at the time and it was a... I guess for me it was a project where I felt that I'd learnt, I'd been through some hard yards, I'd learnt some things. Hawk building I was kind of, I had a sense of just being a little bit more accomplished and, and um, being able to really shape the project right. in a proactive way. So that, that's one I remember very fondly. And you know the Conservatorium of Music which um, we were speaking about just a bit earlier, yeah. that's something that we started to work on about 10 years ago. Oh really? Mm, so we had a 
we had a call from uh, the Vice-Chancellor at Melbourne Uni and he was heading off to Canberra to have lunch with the Federal Education Minister and he said, I need, you know, in a week, mind you, and he said, give me something, I'm talking to him about a new conservatorium. And so we sort of um, downed tools on everything else and put together a couple of images of what a new conservatorium might look like. And from there we were involved in a couple of business cases for them which really tried to position the project for funding and eventually the funding did come through and we then competed in a competition to, to win the commission and we right. fortunately did. So it was kind of such a long, a long pathway that we just remained very committed to all the way through and just wow. really determined that, yeah, that would be an opportunity for us. Mm. And do you think, I mean, you're, you're an established practice, but you're also a practice that's been around, yeah, I think you celebrated your 30 years. Yeah, um, yes. Was it last year? Year um, before. Year before, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so 32 years. Do you think that there are strengths in having a practice that um, has that longevity to it? Yeah, I mean... Well, I think for us, you know, over that period of time, we've we've grown a lot, as we've talked yeah. about, but we've also really built a strong culture that I think is what allows us to continue doing what we do. Um, yeah, uh, mm. and that sort of comes with time, really. Yeah, and so moving forwards, like, yeah, you've recently opened an office in Sydney, which, mm. yeah, sounds like you yeah. already had um, a bit of work going on there anyway. Is there a plan or is it, again, something that's quite organic in terms of what the future for John Water Architects? Yeah, Probably great a very question. hard question to answer. <laughs> um, look, we, um, we've never been strong planners about where what our future trajectory is. Opening Sydney, we, we've sort of reached capacity in our Collingwood studio and we really like the size we are here. Yeah. We think that in Melbourne it's probably about right for us. I mean, Sydney at the moment is a team of, of five or six, so it's oh, quite wow. small. Lots of opportunity to grow mm. up there. Um, we've had some fantastic opportunities come in already. And look, it's it's a little bit of a wait and see. Yeah, exactly. See, like, um, see what happens. And um, yeah, so if you were to give some advice to yourself when you were younger, mm. just starting out, yeah, um, yeah what, what would well, it be? What would that be? <laughs> Well, you know, actually some advice that I um, have given to younger people before is really to, I think to find your way in the architectural profession, um, it, it can be quite challenging, that, you know, small practice, big practice, what kind of work do you do, do you focus yeah. and specialise or what have you. And um, I mean, I think one thing that's really important for young architects is to really identify their values and then work out how they can um, sort of be true to their values through their work. Right. And so, I mean, one thing for me that was has always been very important is to be making a positive contribution to public realm and that's something that the practice here talks about, um, yeah. talks about a lot. But um, I kind of identified that as being important to me fairly early and then I was able to kind of shape a career in work that can impact that um, right yeah so that's um and look i appreciate everyone has different values and different yeah. um, sort of principles by which they want to work but i think just identifying those can really allow you to navigate um your career in a in a more meaningful way mm. yeah. that's really interesting it sort of sounds like 
yeah, from this discussion, um, I thought this discussion would be about architecture and craft and right, um, yeah. and detailing. But um, <laughs> what I really liked about it is actually I think what it's been about and the advice I think what it's perhaps giving is, yeah, getting people to think about how they can design more empathetically and what their own values are and mm. how mm. how that can be applied to space. And, um, yeah, there's... I love it that we're in Melbourne. It's such a diverse city. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. being able to, um, yeah, there's not one sort of architectural figure that you have to be like. You can, your opinion is valued. Um, just to finish up, um, how do you think architectural students or or um, emerging or architects in general could um, themselves engage as more empathetic designers? That is an interesting question. Well, I think, yes, well, I, I mean, to bring it back to scale and detail, yeah. materiality, <laughs> I do think that that's one um, technique that we have that allows us to design in, in an empathetic way. You know, we, we've, we pay great attention to handrail details, for example. Yeah. And that's an element of the building that you touch when you um, move through. And so right. I think that, you know, the, the, the detail um, is often about responding to the way people would use a space. Um, so perhaps it's in, in around there that um, we achieve what we achieve. Yeah, that's good advice. And mm. maybe as well, when people are studying these buildings, sometimes I think when you're at university or you're just starting out, they seem like these huge things and you wonder how did that... I'm still sort of wondering mm. how, how does that happen? You know, the really big $100 yeah. million dollar, um, mm. Melbourne Uni or Monash... <coughs> Monash Unity, amazing mm. buildings, and you've done like a couple of them. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe bringing it back down to the detail and studying the detail of a building um, mm. whilst you're at uni and not just getting lost in the overall scheme. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. It's been really great and, um, yeah, packed with some really good information. Fabulous. Great. Thank you.